0: Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. You're listening to a special episode recorded at Symposium 2. A conference held in Los Angeles at Stephen Wise Temple in November of 2018. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the College Commons podcast a colleague here in the Los Angeles area and someone who may be well known to many of you, Rabbi Sharon Brous. Rabbi Brous was named number one on the Newsweek, The Daily Beast list of the most influential rabbis in America in 2013, and she's one of the founders of IKAR in Los Angeles, a Jewish congregation that has become a model for Jewish revitalization in the U.S. and beyond, where she currently serves as the senior rabbi. Rabbi Browse, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Among the many public speeches and talks you have online where I got some of my material, in addition to many people we know in common and and hear about your work, um, I picked up on a thread that captured my attention, which was, You spoke of, uh, in your TED Talk, if I'm not mistaken, people who read a religious tradition as a wellspring for anger and aggression. And you call on us, frankly, you make a very impassioned call on us to read those same texts for compassion and empathy. I want to know if there is a bottom line, an intractable part of our tradition that is irreducibly violent and that we can't feasibly or convincingly reread it all, but that we have to reckon with nonetheless?
1: Hmm. That's a really interesting question. Um, I don't want to avoid, ignore, apologize, or justify for our really difficult texts and the parts of our tradition that are used as justification for violence and extremism and hatred. And yet I really do believe that to be a person of faith, to be a religious person in the world today is an act of will and an act of choice. And we are all actively engaging a tradition that's thousands of years old and multifaceted. And we have to determine which path we take. And so it's not to say that somebody who reads from our tradition, a justification for violence is rendering an illegitimate read. But rather that to be human in the world today, we're called to make a different choice. And so I don't want to say that's Jewish, that's not Jewish, but my choice uh, is to is to live a Jewish life that is that's inspired by our tradition and resonant with the core values that speak from our tradition about human beings being created in the image of God. And some of those are absolutely irreconcilable with the most xenophobic um, and most and most narrow-minded renderings from our tradition. So any Jew who's alive in the world today, who's engaging our tradition seriously, is engaging in an active interpretation. And I believe that it's upon us, it's really our obligation to, to search and seek out the voices from the tradition that call us to be more loving, more forgiving, more compassionate and wholehearted, particularly in the moment that we're living in today.
0: So maybe we could sum up by saying religion isn't a matter of degree as much as it is a matter of emphasis.
1: I think that's fair to say. I think in actually in in most of the faith traditions that I've ever encountered there are opportunities for and justifications for really bad behavior and opportunities also for holiness. And so I think it's that's that's the choice that we hold. Do we do we engage the tradition looking for pathways toward holiness and looking to illuminate the, the human possibility in this world? Or do we look do we use religion as a tool to do exactly the opposite? If
0: we try to do some maybe radical empathy and empathize with those, whoever they are, the people who choose to make the opposite choice you're you're advocating for, who choose to read, to take the opportunity for the most violent and aggressive readings of any given tradition? Mm -hmm. Can we empathize, try to empathize with them? And if we do that, we imagine them to be acting from a place of, let's say, self-defense. What do we do?
1: I think it's always important for us to engage in exercises of radical empathy to try to understand better the people that we don't agree with. And I also think that we're making a grave error if we think that everything is equally acceptable and honorable in our, in our world and in our society. And so while I do desperately want to understand people who see the world very differently than I do, people who use sacred tradition as justification for violence and for regressive policies that do terrible harm to the bodies of women, of LGBT people, of people of color, etc um i don't believe that they're necessarily right and it's my job to just find what's right in them and i think often the people who are using our texts and our traditions in this way um are are wedded to power more than they're wedded to truth and so what they're looking for in our tradition is a justification for them holding on to the power that they already have and our tradition offers it to them there are there are many narratives and verses that one could read as permission to engage in really bad behavior. But again, that's a choice that somebody's making, that they will take the tradition and utilize it in that way in order to justify holding on to their own privilege and their own power.
0: I don't doubt it for a minute. I mean, I certainly agree that there are people like that in the world, and maybe every single one of us is guilty of that in moments. What happens when we genuinely encounter someone who is not angling, but who is sincerely, and in many ways, perhaps desperately, um, feeling the, the need to defend him or herself for themselves, and therefore relies on the tools of violence that, that any tradition has in ways that we can disagree with, but understand where does that leave us if, if, if they're our adversaries or our enemies,
1: Understanding someone else's approach and even feeling empathy toward them doesn't doesn't make them right. And it doesn't mean that you have to vote in accordance with their ideas or ideology, and it doesn't mean that you have to build social structures in accordance with their ideals. I mean, remember that the greatest defense used for the institution of slavery was the Hebrew Bible. I mean there in here in the United States, that was how slavery was justified, and every Sunday for hundreds for over a hundred years, slave owners would go to church and be told by their pastors while waving you know our our Hebrew Bible in the air that they were doing god 's will that doesn't make it right it's important for us to try to understand what what's going on there, what would make a person feel so desperate to Um, to get a kind of divine or ancient permission for their bad behavior that they would look to religion for that purpose. But that doesn't make it right. So I think we should always um, long to engage in deeper understanding and acquire deeper understanding of people who don't see the world that we do. But I also think we're making a mistake if we don't, if we're afraid to say that sometimes it's not about right and left, but it's about right and wrong. And there are certain views that even if someone can find a, a pasuk, a verse that can justify their position, it's cruel and it's inhuman and it degrades the human being created in the image of God. And therefore, we don't abide it.
0: Right. So I hear you. I hear you landing on a place. If I'm hearing you correctly, of comfort with an irreducible adversarialism at some point between right and wrong, and even if that adversity or adversarialism comes from a place of empathy, that the empathy may not mitigate the fundamental conflict. And that if so, so be it. We, we, we pursue what we deem right.
1: Yeah, that, that, I think that's exactly right. Um, I took my daughters to Georgia so that we could do some poll monitoring for the election in Georgia, which is really kind of the beating heart of the voter suppression movement in this country and we had a big event at Ebenezer Baptist Church, at Dr. King's Church the night before. And I wanted my daughters to experience it with me. So I took them out of school and we got on a plane to Georgia. And on the plane, we were learning Gemara, which is, you know, a rabbi mother's dream. And she was learning Eluva Elu from Eruveen. Um, the, the notion that Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel engaged in a conflict for many years. And ultimately, the the voice of God comes down from the heaven and says, this the, a, this one is the voice is the word of the living God and this one's the Lord of the living God, and ultimately the law is going to go according to Hillel. and we were talking about what does it mean to that there's truth in both of their perspectives and that ultimately you have to learn to walk the path of one perspective because you can't always be walking two paths at once, and the conversation very quickly because of the nature of our trip I think took a really interesting turn, which is. In the case of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, there was actually truth to both of their perspectives. And there often is truth to multiple perspectives in ways that we are very resistant to seeing. And yet there's not always truth to both both perspectives. So, for example, in the battle between voter engagement and voter suppression, it's not an elu-va-elu battle where these are both legitimate ways of winning elections, getting more people to vote and suppressing in particular people of color who want to vote, but rather there's one path that's right and one path that is wrong and unjust and illegal. And so I think we have to learn how to build hearts that are able to hold more truths than are comfortable. Eluva Elu, the person I disagree with on certain matters or perspectives might also be right, um, might even be more right than I am. And also there are certain boundaries, there are certain lines that once they're crossed, we're not all we're not all looking at various various shades of what might be true and what might be right but some people might actually be wrong and i don't want to be afraid to say that
0: i hear it i hear it i don't think i disagree one iota but um i do kind of despair i don't know exactly what to do with that but um
1: where does the despair come from
0: the despair comes from the um absolute conviction that the other side sees me i know perfectly well that it's a mirrored discourse perfectly mirrored and that creates an unbridgeability which is to me in the course of human events cause for despair
1: i think there's a lot of cause for despair right now but i do i do have a sense that one of the problems that we're facing in this particular political culture that we're living in is that it used to be that progressivism would push people to try to engage in radical empathy and understand the other side. And now we see that same kind of attempt at um at seeing truths everywhere that led the president of the United States to not be able to flat out condemn Nazis marching um in this country and actually taking the life of an innocent protester. And so there's a danger to engaging in a good people on both sides mentality when we're talking about nazis on one side and and i so i th- what i think is very important for us is to establish that there that there is a tent of engagement and within that tent there are people on some kind of broad spectrum who see things really differently and m- might disagree but can still um believe that they At the core of what they both believe in is is the betterment of humanity. And I think that the mistake is trying to make a tent that includes absolutely everybody, because there's some people who fundamentally want to undermine the human experience and human freedom of other people. And that, to me, renders a a person's ideology illegitimate. Of course, there's always the Derek Black story. There's always the story of the, the grand wizard of the KKK's son who goes to Shabbos dinner and... Somehow over the course of time, his humanity has awakened in him and we should never give up on people, but there are certain ideologies that there should be no room for in our social discourse. And I understand for progressives, that's a hard thing to grapple with because we want to make room for everything. But there are certain ideologies that are rooted in white supremacy, that are rooted in misogyny, that are so detrimental to our society that I don't believe that they deserve a seat at the table.
0: As I said, I I really don't disagree one iota. I just observe that there's another tent out there, which sees itself with the same moral, frankly, high ground that you and I see ourselves in, because it turns out that you and I are in the same tent. And um, hence my despair.
1: I hear it. It is absolutely devastating. And and I believe that it's a leadership crisis that has led to a moral and spiritual crisis. And it it is tearing the country apart. I mean, a part of it is that we all, the way that societies progress is by eventually shutting down ideologies that have no place as as we evolve and move forward. And when those old ideologies are heroized and celebrated long after they should have been put to rest, it, it awakens something in people who you know, it, it, who feel a sense of, of loss, of fear, um, feel like the world's moving forward without them. And and I think it's devastating to see because it's a false god. It's, I mean, the the, the whole idea of, of white supremacy and racialized hatred and this ginning up of anti-Semitic canards, which make people feel like they're part of a club again, right? There's something to hold on to now in this in this fast paced time where you know people are losing their jobs to automation and you know and the technology and it, so all of a sudden I'm I'm in something again and I, and I feel like I'm part of something and I'm needed again because there's an other that's that's evil and needs to be suppressed oppressed repressed and it's devastating because people because people are now. Shaping lives and communal structures around these ideas that really need to be laid to rest, and so for the people who invest in that way from their hearts, it, of course, I feel I feel a great sense of sadness and loss, and um, not only because I don't want to live in a world that has to continue to, that has to continually fight the same battles. I don't want to have to live in a, in a society that's trying to. Now regain acceptance for the idea that Nazism is actually a bad thing. I don't want to have to refight the Civil War again in this mm-hmm. country, um, but also because it's devastating for the people who are on the other side of this battle, who who could live a very different reality if they weren't being fed this very hate filled agenda. So I I do I hear the despair. I think it's absolutely devastating what's happening right now, and it's a total. I believe that it is a moral crisis in the country. And it's about, it's about arguing and, and offering a narrative that allows people to feel seen and to feel like they belong and to feel like they are loved by virtue of, of being human beings in the world, not by virtue of how much they can suppress or oppress another person who has less privilege and less power than they do.
0: Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars. Unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. In some contexts you say religious discipline, and you tend to think of of, um, Catholicism because it has a a very enshrined um, system of, of... of discipline around sex and sometimes food and sometimes what you say and certain communities and everything and, and priests and what have you. But um, I wanted to ask you what you think Judaism has to offer religious civilizations in terms of wisdom about religious discipline.
1: Hmm. Well, I we could call it religious discipline. We could call them spiritual tools. I think that there's a that our tradition offers a framework to help us hold this moment that we're living through. And I have to tell you that I felt it in a much more clear and and extreme way over the course of the past couple of years. But the the very notion of of Shabbat and being a part of a religious tradition that creates a rhythm out of time and tells us that not every day is like every other day. And that we don't just spiral in this kind of endless devolving cycle of days, but instead we actually stop and engage in a practice in which in which one day one day is offered to us as an opportunity to reclaim holiness. This has for me been an absolutely transformative religious engagement, and I would say life giving, and so and life sustaining. So the idea. That there's a that there's a religious tradition that calls us to breathe once a week and to sing, right, and to sit in community. Those things are they're so counter normative to in our in our culture right now. It's so counterintuitive, and I have found that that Shabbat is has become like an oxygen and and something I'm so struck by now, when the world is so loud and so painful. And then we come into Kabbalah Shabbat and there are these Psalms that our rabbis put together over the course of the last thousand years. And you realize that as as challenging as things are right now, we've faced really much worse times. And even still at the end of every week, they said, now we sing. And I mean that just takes my breath away. It's the most obvious thing, but Mizmor David, Mizmor Shir Yom Hashabbat, Shiru Laronai, Shir Chadash. These these songs that we sing at the end of really rough weeks these days are the same songs that were put together precisely so that we could find a way to sing again, no matter what was happening outside, and and what was burning, and and who was being attacked, and and in what and where we from where we were being exiled and so the religious discipline of shabbat is a spiritual practice but but it works best when it's engaged in a disciplined way meaning every shabbat right because it's you're creating a container so that you can have this experience when you need it and that might mean that some fridays we don't we're not ready for Shabbat and we don't want it and we have too much to do. And yet the act of showing up and engaging in this kind of discipline is what I think gives us the opportunity to be liberated by it and, and, and strengthened and nurtured by it. So I, I think about it both as a both as a discipline, but not really as a restrictive discipline, more as a kind of liberating discipline. It's it's giving us the scaffolding to be able to engage in the, in the spiritual work that we need to in order to even survive these days, let alone to sing through the dark days.
0: It's been my experience individually, but I also think in conversations with my friends and colleagues that uh, people who take any given discipline seriously generally find it liberating. Discipline mm-hmm. itself mm-hmm. is, um, I think to many, many people, uh an act of um i don't know there's something about self-control which is also an affirmation of Mm -hmm, mm self-determination and that is a liberating thing self-determination is often a synonym with freedom and i i I, I noted mostly in 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 our universe here in southern california in exercise and what i found is i as i'm getting older there's there's a there's a an attribution of respect for one's character when that person expresses discipline through exercise, not because of the exercise, but because of the discipline, and mm-hmm. what happens when you realize how many people you realize that there's mm-hmm. a lot of deep characters out there, a lot of people who really carve out time and commit to something hard, something not easy, the benefits which of which are um, you know, delayed.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: there's, there's character there. It's kind of impressive if you stop to think about
1: it. I think that's really interesting. And I want to share with you that um, right as we were starting IKAR, I had a friend who lived in the city. Near me, and she was driving to Burbank for a particular yoga instructor, and which is ridiculous because Angelina's like you would never drive to right. Burbank <laughs> by choice, right? Um, and vice versa, it's just the traffic precludes you know any kind of right. choice like that. But I asked her why, and she said because that's the best yoga instructor in the city, right? And I get the I get the best workout when I go there. And I was thinking, it's so interesting when you take it, when you take a practice seriously, how far you're willing to go to engage it. And yet with our Jewish practice, we have built systems around the lowest common denominator, not around the highest, not like schlep to Burbank because it's worth it, because you will be challenged and pushed so hard that you will feel like I just engage in a liberating discipline, but instead make it quick, make it easy, make it English, make it, you know, make it painless. And I feel like that was a real strategic error that we made mm. in, you know, over the course of the 20th century in trying to determine how to hold Jews. We made we the didn't decision- didn't ask them
0: to rise to the occasion. No, we yeah.
1: made it so easy for them so that they wouldn't leave. And then they left because they don't want easy because they want Burbank, right? Right, and, right? And I feel now in the communities that are really thriving in the country today are communities that have kind of reclaimed a sense of challenge and inspiration and- where we're not afraid to say to people, this is what's expected of you as a Jew. You're being called to engage in the world in a particular way. And, you know, at Icar, we started with, with, and many of our people are formerly unaffiliated Jews, disconnected, marginalized. And, you know, we said, we're going to do a really traditional prayer experience here that, that when the rabbis who are the deans of the rabbinical schools come to IKAR, they're going to feel challenged. But that means that there's a whole slew of other people who have no idea what's going on, but they're going to understand that something very powerful and real is happening. And it's hopefully going to make them want to learn more and dive more deeply into the experience. And I, I and it's not only at IKAR, but I see this happening around the country in really beautiful ways in new communities and in old communities that are yeah. regenerating and reinventing themselves, but they're, they're saying we we need to bring a challenge back into the spiritual discipline of Jewish life, that it can't, it can't be simple and work because nothing is a simple workout. You don't feel good afterwards. So why are we giving people a simple spiritual workout and then expecting them to come back?
0: I want to thank you, Rabbi Sharon Browse for taking the time to speak with me. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and to get to know you a
1: little bit. Thank you so much. And thank you for all that you do.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the College Commons website, collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.